And so those acts of noticing, they're intrinsically introspective. Thanks for joining us today. You're listening to Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Welcome. Come, choose to be curious with us. Tom Mullaney is a professor of Chinese history at Stanford University and a Guggenheim Fellow. He's also co-author with Christopher Ray of Where Research Begins, choosing a research project that matters to you and the world. Where Research Begins is a remarkable book, workbook, really. It takes on the two challenges every researcher faces with any new project. One, how do I find a compelling problem to investigate, one that truly matters to me deeply and personally? And two, how do I then design my research project so that the results will matter to anyone else? And as seen through the choose to be curious lens, it provides a curiosity-informed generative process for finding and really understanding the questions underlying anything you might want to learn about. They wrote the book to be a sort of prequel to the basic craft of research. It's a great book, and there are many excellent interviews with Tom that tell you all about it and its inspiration. But I wanted to dig into some really rich curiosity practices that they've created that I think are smart and relevant way beyond their academic origins. Yeah, asking questions is extremely hard. Uh, Right. So why is that? I mean, we've been doing it all our lives. Why are we not good at it? Well, there, there are a few different reasons. I mean, just to give one, I think that we... We are conditioned in many in many cases to ask questions that jump ahead a few a few spots mm-hmm. without realizing. So, for example, one of the one of the most common formulations of a question in college and high school is, "How did X impact Y?" or "What did person or people X think about Y?" and on the face of it, these seem like open-ended questions. They seem like, yeah, whatever the answer is, is whatever the answer is, except that they jump ahead. You know, we don't, we're not really conditioned to think of questions as something that you need to refine and iterate and educate. We talk about educating your question. Which I think is a lovely, I really like that frame on it because it has this sense of the capacity for deepening, widening, focusing. Mm. I mean, it's like yeah. it can go in a lot of different directions there. Yeah. Because there's a whole theory in curiosity that curiosity happens as a function of surprise, where our assumptions and what we encounter in reality don't align. There's some sort of a gap. And you describe that gap as the place where, you know, research questions can really start to be formed. And Mm. so it's like, oh, what don't I know here? Oh, Mm. how might this be something other than what I'm assuming that it is? I mean, you're sort of, you're encouraging people at some level to kind of put speed bumps in their mental processes, right? And then notice what happens when they hit the bumps. Yeah. Yeah. Like one could make a really sophisticated, erudite sounding question and jump over the place where they should have paused and said, wait a minute. Okay. What's up with that? What's up with that? Because you're right. I mean, I, I think the 
empirical research on what curiosity is seems absolutely you know robust that it is this it is this incongruence is this mismatch between a model you carry around of you of the world and then the world kind of as it presents itself and so those acts of noticing are simultaneously they're intrinsically introspective they're intrinsically like oh wow what is the world like and gosh what's going on inside my my being that makes me sensitized to this and that's if you can stay with there for just i mean i'm talking about a few minutes sometimes a few maybe a few hours you stay in that place for a little bit the questions you come out with at the end are orders of magnitude better than if you just skip the introspective part and start writing a paper. One of the things for me that was such an important takeaway from the book was the idea of the problem collective. And it occurs to me that the problem collective is one way of imposing these speed bumps, these pauses in our assumptions and the sort of echo chamber of the field. And you make this distinction between one's field, you're a professor of Chinese history, and one's problem collective. And I say it was a real light bulb moment for me because you gave me language to an idea I've been grappling with since I started the conversation that curiosity is more like a problem collective than it is a field right now. Mm. And I thought that's interesting. I wonder what my field is. But I wonder if you can describe that difference, elaborate on what I was able to say there and why and how you think that distinction is so important. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a conspiratorial person, but there's almost an accidental conspiracy of life. But it it really is a conspiracy in the structuration of everything, you know, majors in college and professional associations and libraries and bookstores and categories of it's everything is organized according to topics, you know, categorical topics. And so it's very easy for one to find those who are categorized in that same bucket as you. You could just go, in my case, I could go to the annual meeting of the Association for Asian Studies or the American Historical Association or the History of Science Society, whatever. It's, you, you, you fall over a log and you, can, you fall into these categories. I go into the bookstore, I wander into the history section or I wander into this. But the honest truth, if we're honest with ourselves and if we allow ourselves to admit when we're bored... Yes. That yes, I care about something as a human being, but as a as a being in this world, as a, as as someone who's thinking, I I don't care about X or Y or Z, and I'm and I should be unashamed. I, I shouldn't be ashamed to say that out loud. But when I go to the <laughs> meeting of the Association for Asian Studies, I'm bored out of my mind probably about seventy percent of the time. I'm jet lagged. I'm tired. Whatever. Uh-huh. But the but the more importantly is as as deeply as I respect and admire the work that's going on all around me. And, and just, I'm in, I'm in awe of that. Just because someone works on Asia or China means zero as to whether or not that person and I, or me and the audience listening to them, is just going to be sent over a cliff edge of wonder by what it is that they're saying. Mm-hmm. By, by, but by contrast, you might sit me down with someone who works on Gosh, you know, medieval, you know, medieval Germany, medieval Europe on the Ottoman Empire, but also on neurophysiology or biostatistics or nanoengineering. I don't know. And something is happening. It's like it's it's the intellectual equivalent of a really good date that you just come home from. And you're just like, that was such an amazing date. I just went on. And that glue is problem. It's always about there's something 
that two people or, or a group of people share on the basis of problem, not their case, not the case study right. in which their problem is manifested. And so the or- world is basically organized according to case studies, effectively, whether those be geographic or so forth. And so it's both difficult to find who those individuals are, because there's no taxonomy, there's no finding aid for that. Uh, but as we talk about in the book, it's really an imperative thing, almost as as much for one's intellectual growth, to find these individuals, to see you know people who have done this before you, who can give you advice, who can show you models of how to do it, who can push you and tell you this is the quality you should be you know aspiring for. But it's almost it's as much for one's well being. I remember when I encountered my you know problem collective like works by them, it was a feeling of. I didn't, I thought I was weird. And I don't mean weird, and I use weird in a good way. I mean weird in that sort of, I don't belong, I'm a misfit. I am doing something wrong. I am not doing this mm-hmm. right. I am bad at this. But then you see someone in in beautiful black and white between two covers, and, and you then you read more about them. And it's just like, okay, I have... I have like permission from the world now um, (laughs) to do this. Uh, And so you can't just take someone there and be like, they say one word and you're like, okay, stop, stop, stop. I know who your problem collective is. Come with me. They're in room 702. You can't do it that way just because of the way the world's structured. But there are ways that we can increase the likelihood of, of stumbling upon them. And that's what we try to walk through with like the change one variable exercise. That's really what that's about. Um, The before and after exercise. That's what that about. You're listening to Choose to be Curious, conversations about curiosity and work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and I'm joined today by Tom Mullaney, whose book, Where Research Begins, Choosing a Research Project that Matters to You and the World, offers tools and structures for refining and interrogating our questions, whether we think of ourselves as researchers or not. I had flagged those two exercises, actually, as among my favorites. You have so many, but those are two of my favorites. This book is full of life skills. I know you thought you were writing for researchers, but you were writing for the human species. Yeah, th- these are these are my favorites too. I, I have to say, and they're they're ones that we can't necessarily roadshow as much in our workshops because they do take time when you really do them. We actually did yeah. it with a group of people live, and it was amazing. But uh, change one variable. It's it's a very simple concept. You sit down with someone and just ask them. You know, in your current condition, your current awareness of what it is you're doing, how would you describe what you're working on? And you know, let's let's try to be specific. So if I'm in history, I'd like to know kind of time. I'd like to know a place. I'd like to know a general group of historical agents. I'd like to know a phenomenon, as much as you can give me. Okay. And so a student, this all comes from thousands of hours of conversations with students. That's where the book really comes from. But one student came to me, I forget which class it is now. He said, I'm interested in child abuse in Cambodia in the 1960s. I said, okay, great. So now what we can do is we can take that and we can break it up into variables. We've got a place, we have Cambodia, we have a time zone or time frame, 1960s, we have a phenomenon, child abuse. Okay. And I tell the student, the only thing you have to do with me is just be honest. Do not try to impress me. Do not try to guess at what I'm hoping you say. 
I'm going to plug you into a hypothetical EKG, and we're going to sort of keep an electrophysiological track of how excited your body is when I try to reformulate your question. So the first thing I'll assume, I'm going to assume is that if I plug you into this EKG and you repeat, I'm interested in child abuse in Cambodia in the 1960s, my assumption is that the needle is going to spike. You're concerned with this. We don't know why yet. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to change one of these variables at a time in isolation. And all I want you to do is tell me, does your needle continue to spike? Does it flatline? Does it maybe get more interested? I don't know. Okay, let's go. Um, two 32-year-old guys getting into it at a bar in Cambodia in the 1960s. What happens to your EKG? No, uh, it doesn't concern me. Okay, okay. That's interesting. Um, so that means that violence is not intrinsically enough. That's not the key of this. So right. um, why is that? Well, a 32-year-old guy can defend himself, I think. And so I, you know, children can't. Okay, wait a minute. And this is what happens is new words begin to spill out on the page. Aha, you didn't say anything about capacity for defense. So now let's fold that in there and, okay, let's change the variable again. Elder abuse in Cambodia in the 1960s. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I would do that, but yes, my needle is... Okay, so now we have this new category. Children for you are not just children in your problem. They are one subset of a kind of set of people with a compromised ability to defend themselves physically. Okay. We didn't know that five seconds ago. Great. So now we, now suddenly I know that you should go probably do JSTOR and Project Muse searches for elder abuse in addition to child abuse and maybe, you know, the abuse of coma patients or whatever, you know, who knows now. Now let's change Cambodia to Canada. No, my the needle falls. Why? Uh, Cambodia was colonized. And I think that colonialism has something to do possibly with legacies of violence. Okay. You never mentioned the word colonialism before. Now it's on the table. Great. What about Vietnam? I don't speak Vietnamese. Poof, magic one. Now you do. (laughs) Hypothetically, if you do, yes, equally interesting. Okay. So now you should probably be looking not only for people that work on child abuse in Cambodia, you should probably also be Googling elder abuse in Vietnam and Laos and, you know, uh-huh. And so forth. And so what we've done is we've we've taken that individual and we've said that chances are if you were going to go attend the annual conference of childhood studies, hypothetically, there is a 70-80% chance that you are going to walk around that conference hotel bored out of your mind. Because children intrinsically are not what's at stake for you. They are they are representative of a broader phenomenon. Yeah. yeah. And likewise, if if we sent you to Cambodian Studies Association, same thing. You would be better suited probably going to, to a, a conference on comparative colonialism. Or you might even be better suited. Now we're talking about legacies of violence. I'm talking about questions of epigenetics and this the research that goes into the effects on mRNA and DNA and so forth on expression, gene expression and violence that are undertaken by pioneering scholars af- working on African-American legacies of slavery, for example. These are probably not areas of the library that prior to our five-minute conversation, you were thinking of going because you probably were trapped in the topical version of what it is mm-hmm. that you were concerned with. So you're probably just Googling Cambodia, 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 and wondering why you're not 
happy. And so in five minutes, you can vastly increase the possibility that that person will go into a neck of the woods, so to speak, of the library, of online world, and have that encounter with someone working on a completely different case, but which totally lights up their EKG. That's when you found the first member of a problem collective, and then you just mine their bibliography and you mine their footnotes (laughs) and you find others. It's very fast once it starts. And real quick, let's talk about before and after, because we both flagged this as a favorite. These are great curiosity practices, so I don't want my audience to not have <laughs> yeah, but, them. But, yeah, before and after. Uh, and, and, and just quickly about the change one variable, the, the goal of it is not to change the student's project. It is not to say, aha, you should do elder abuse now. It's just that uh, do work on child abuse in Cambodia in the 1960s, but know why it is you're doing this. Right. And the same thing with before and after. So let's say that someone is writing an honors thesis or, or maybe you know a, a research paper, something 10,000 words, let's say. That's it. That's what they're doing. That's their project. But the before and after exercise invites them to imagine that they are writing something big, a book, so to speak, uh, and that the thing they're working on now is, say, chapter two or chapter three or chapter four of a six-chapter book, a seven-chapter book. And you're inviting them to imagine what is the chapter that comes before and after it and giving them very, you know, very variations on it. And again, plugging them into that EKG and saying, what happens for you? This came out of a conversation with a student who was working on the Boxer Uprising is my History of Modern China course. And he was, you know, talking about this family who had lost family members in the Boxer Uprising and how they went into hiding. You know, I was like, this is great. Okay. But I'm trying to understand what's your horse in this race. So let's do the before, let's do before and after. Let's imagine that the chapter before is overseas uh, Westerners or Americans in China who died, I don't know, during the Taiping Rebellion. And then after it, foreigners who perished in various kinds of cataclysms during, I don't know, the warlord period or the Second World War. So basically the idea is, let's imagine that you're writing a book about foreign communities in China who, in times of crisis, where they lose family members. And he just said, I don't care about that. And I said, thank you for being honest. It doesn't mean you're a monster that you don't care about people dying. I'm sure as a human you do, but as a scholar, you don't. Great. As a scholar, you have other interests, right? As a scholar, you have other things. But then we hit upon what if what if instead of it just being a timeline idea, what if you talked about hiding a lot? You talked about people hiding. What if the previous chapter were all about another episode of a family trying to hide during one of these earlier conflicts or someone taking uh-huh. refuge and hiding during World War II, you know, a sort of um, East Asian sort of counterpart of a sort of Anne Frank story of, and, you know, what if the whole book were something like a cultural history of hiding or a cultural history of running away? And suddenly his face <laughs> just lit up and he's like, yes. It's like, okay, okay, great, great, great. Hold on, hold your horses there. Uh You don't actually have to write this book, of course. You still only need to write one portion of it. But now we know a bit better about what is actually this, what's actually at stake for you in this thing. It is not the death toll. It is not the loss of life. For some reason, you're fascinated by hiding. Yeah. And, 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 and I don't, you know, and, and, I can't answer the question as to why hiding is of so, such interest to this student, 
But now they just have a mirror hold up to them and they can say, gosh, what is it that makes me interested in people hiding you know, in cities or hiding during conflict? And we're, we're off and running. And then suddenly that student can also go and try to find who out there works on hiding, not who works on the boxer uprising or works on Chinese history, who works on hiding. Yeah. And wow. And so suddenly the, the chances of finding one's a member of one's problem collective increases. And again, once you find one person who is way outside your field, way outside your case, who totally just lights up your Christmas tree, then it's very easy to find others because you can find what, you know, what publisher they printed, you know, what journals that they are part of, what conferences they attend, what panels they've been on, and who, who else was on their panel, what's in their footnotes. Because chances are a, a more advanced scholar, meaning further along in their career, the chances are, are higher that that person may know who their problem collective is and has started to build their world somewhat around it. What, the, what theoreticians, what theorists do they cite um, in their work? And then it becomes much, much easier to build up and find this. So what I love about both of these, I think, is this invitation to imagination using divergent thinking to converge more clearly on your topic. It sounds like you're taking it away from the topic, but actually you're bringing the topic into focus. I think that's, I think that's really lovely. And it feels like, because we're out of time, it feels like a great segue to my big jar of wannabe analogies. Oh, I love it. Which is very much about diverging and converging, right? Okay, so literal big jar. Inside, I have slips of paper. I'm going to take one for you, one for me, one for the audience. And we're going to make an analogy to curiosity with whatever is on these slips. Yours is ice cream. Mine is windshield. And <laughs> we have one for the audience. So you want to go first or you want me to go? I, I I'd love I'd love to see the master at work. Please, uh, I'll defer to you, and then I'd love to dive in. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know. Okay, so so how is curiosity like a windshield? Um, you know, it's spring, and now when you drive around, your windshield gets spattered with bugs, right, or pollen or whatever. And I think curiosity is a little the same way. You drive around with it and it gets splattered with stuff. It collects stuff. Sometimes you kind of got to wipe it away so you can see. But you don't necessarily know what your windshield's going to catch. Um, you just know that it will catch and that um, there is information on your windshield. I love it. Should you choose to pay attention <laughs> that to it? Great. So that's great. <laughs> I'll say that's how okay. curiosity is like a windshield. All right. So, yeah. How is curiosity like ice cream? Well, um, I think curiosity, you could make the case that curiosity is like ice cream, especially in the way that it's made. So, you know, if you think about how ice cream is made, you, you, what you're doing, you, know, you have this super deep frozen cylinder that's going to be rotating. And then you have this other device that's going to be sort of scraping against that super frozen cylinder that rotates. And then you pour in this, you pour in this liquid, you pour in whatever the sort of ingredients are at cool, but not, you know, and what happens is, is that the moment that it, it touches, um, the moment it, it, it touches the edge of this super frozen cylinder, that there's a layer that freezes into ice crystals. Now, this is the key though. If 
if that cylinder weren't moving and kept in motion, all that would happen is that you would end up with a sort of big block of frozen milk or frozen, you know, whatever it is. You wouldn't have ice cream. Um, right. It's got to stay right. turning. You've, that thing has got to be moving. But even if it's moving, if you if that was it, if it's just a moving cylinder, it's seat frozen, and then this milk, it would still just sort of solidify into this rock hard, unappetizing thing. You need this extra device that just gently scrapes the second that something freezes. That something there is to scrape those frozen particles of of this delicious goodness. This these these ice these milk turned to ice crystals to scrape them off the moment that they freeze to allow the next layer of this liquid to come into contact with this, this super frozen thing to scrape it off and to scrape it off and to scrape it off. And that there is something about, you know, if you want to make the analogy um, that this milk, this is in, a, in, in some sense, uh, I don't know which one it would be, whether the milk is you or whether milk is life and that you are this super frozen thing that is coming <laughs> into contact and freezing parts of it, sort of crystallizing parts of it, but then writing the act of constantly getting things down on paper, not just letting these moments go, but scraping every one of those crystals off the second that they form. That's what makes ice cream. You need all three of those things in order to do it. You need the milk, you need the oh, cylinder, nice. and you need to be constantly shaving off a tiny bit of these of these crystals at a time. And then when the process is done, you've got ice cream. You've got your you, you've got your work. That you, that you did. And, and you're trying to make something that is delicious to you and delicious that someone else would want to consume. I think that would be my, my analogy. <laughs> I, I love that ice cream is to curiosity as curiosity is to where research begins. <laughs> great. It was great. And audience, yours is peanut butter. I was curiosity like peanut butter. Let me know. Social media, hashtag analogy. Well, Tom, thank you so much for this. Thank you for your book. As I say, I've been recommending it to everyone. I just think it's like a workbook of life hacks. I know you're writing for the academics, but I'm part of the problem collective that's working to make it a bigger audience. No, I appreciate that. I know, and on behalf of Chris as well, I know that we really appreciate that. I think we've come to a similar conclusion without intending to that we do believe that research is is simply an act of life. It's not an act of, you know, that students do in a classroom. It is something we do every day. And and in that sense, uh, we're we're with we're with you on that one. So thank you for 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 saying that. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious, conversations about curiosity and work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Thank you for joining me here today. I hope you'll support the great community radio stations that bring you the kind of rich and diverse programming you so enjoy. You can find this and all my previous episodes on my website at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you follow me there and on social media at Choose to be Curious, where you can also share your peanut butter analogy, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to my guest, Tom Mullaney. Links to where research begins and his other fascinating work on my website. Thanks, too, to Sean Ballack for our theme music. And this is Distill by Darby via Blue Dot Sessions. I'm going to play with replacing variables for some time to come and thinking about how to build my problem collective. Where do you think your problem collective might be? I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then... Choose to be curious. Mm-hmm.